The verse that has been on my mind this week is Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. What a wonderful word from the Lord. And we do need comfort today. COVID-19 is causing anxiety and stress and depression. We've joined together in the great throng of people throughout the ages who have patiently endured plagues, epidemics, pandemics. Some of those actually changed the course of history. In Rome, in 165 AD, the Antonine Plague, believed to be smallpox, ravaged Rome and killed an estimated 5 million people. The bubonic plague in the Byzantine Empire, the cradle of Christianity, killed so many people that the empire itself faded from the world's scene. In 1607, Martin Reinkart, a German pastor, wrote the hymn, Now Thank We All Our God. One of the great hymns of faith and of praise. Now thank we all our God with heart and hands and voices who wondrous things has done in whom his world rejoices, who from our mother's arms has blessed us on our way with countless gifts of love and still is ours today. O may this bounteous God through all our life be near us with ever joyful hearts and blessed peace to cheer us, to keep us in his grace and guide us when perplexed and free us from all ills of this world in the next. All praise and thanks to God the Father now be given, the Son and Spirit blessed who reign in highest heaven, the one eternal God whom heaven and earth adore, for thus it was, is now, and shall be evermore. What is less known is that Martin Reinkart was in Ellenburg, Saxony during the Thirty Years' War. The Swedish army had surrounded the city. It was a walled city, and inside the city, plague and famine were rampant. Reinkart itself officiated at over 4,000 funerals. Sadly, his wife and his children among them. The strain on the local pastors was so great they too began to succumb to plague. And it wasn't too long before Reinhardt was the only one left, performing 50 funerals a day to include many of the pastors that he had worked with for many years. It was at that point that the Swedes demanded a huge ransom a ransom that could not be paid. So Reinhardt left the city walls to beg for mercy. The Swedish commander was so impressed by his faith and courage that he lowered the amount to something that they could pay. It wasn't long after that that the Thirty Years' War ended, and Reinhardt wrote this hymn as a grand celebration service to offer praise and thanks to God for the end of the war. Now, he had written some of the words of it before. He originally wrote the words as a prayer to be said before the meager meals that they could muster while they were behind those walls. 
He understood that the only pathway through the misery, through the pain, was to recognize that our God, even when everything looks bleak, is faithful. He is bounteous. He is full of blessings. Blessings as seemingly small as a tiny dinner. But that was enough to raise heart and hand and voice. The testimony to his faith that he wrote this song uh, after such tribulation and patient endurance. It's one of the lasting hymns of the faith. Note the words, the last verse, All praise and thanks to God. The Father now be given, the Son and Spirit blessed, who reign in highest heaven, the one eternal God, whom heaven and earth adore, for thus it was, is now, and shall be evermore. In the midst of his own sorrow, the way that he found a pathway forward was through understanding who God is and where God is. He must have been reading from Revelation chapter 4, among other verses, because he alluded to its words. He understood that no matter what we see around us, no matter what the pain, what the privations, the Lord is on his throne. John 16, 33 tells us, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So how does God offer us comfort in troubled times, in all times, really? He does so by demonstrating to us that we're to focus on Him. We're to focus on the throne of God. So as we're going to talk about the, front, the throne as we go along, but a little bit of background again. Remember the very book itself was outlined by John in chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. And then again in chapter 1 and 19, write therefore the things you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. The things you have seen uh, had reference to John's vision of the glorified Christ there in chapter 1 in the midst of the candles. And as he speaks of the things which are, that refers to the condition of the churches, which we've just spent the last seven weeks uh, going through and understanding as they're described in chapters 2 and 3. And now here in Revelation 4, 1, John hears the words, Come up here, and I will show you things which must be hereafter. And so we begin the third major division of the book. We understand the words of this book in their normal sense. That is, that there are obvious allusions, there are obvious metaphors, but when we are able to take a text literally, we do so, and it talks about literal events that have not yet happened. Our attention is turned to God's prophetic plan. So the key word in this particular text is the word throne, and it occurs 14 times in 11 verses. The amazing thing about this is that's the thing that absolutely captivates 
John's attention. He, even though he didn't know about this was the word to him about the beginning of the consummation of human history, that wouldn't have caught his attention anyway. What caught his attention was the throne of God. From that throne, God rules with sovereign power and authority. Psalm 103, 19 tells us, The Lord has established his throne in heaven, and his kingdom rules over all. Now, so why is this so important to us? Among other reasons, it's significant for us to understand that the book of Revelation takes place in three settings. The world, the church, and in heaven. As I mentioned the last seven weeks, we've covered these different churches. And when we look at them, it's evident that all we find are struggling churches in a desperate world. I mean, watch the news for five minutes and reflect on the government's handling of this crisis or a thousand others or, or reflect on the, the pain or the dysfunction we have in our own families. And we're immediately left with discouragement, anxiety, and depression. But there is a literary irony here that's in play because John, through the Spirit, takes us on a journey into heaven itself. He lets us see what the world cannot see. He gives us a behind-the-scenes look at what is really going on in our troubled world. And I tell you, without that perspective, without a heavenly perspective, we are bound by the dirt of earth. We can't even look up and see the stars. John himself uh, was subject to this discouragement and the, the binding of, of, of the world. He was on the Isle of Patmos, where he had been exiled because of the testimony that he had for Jesus Christ. He was essentially alone. He was an outcast. He was an outcast from Roman society, Greek society, even his own Jewish society. He was coming, listen, he was coming to the end of his life and the Lord had just soundly and roundly whacked the churches that he had spent his years ministering to. He had reason. Verse 1 and chapter 1 and verse 9, he told us that he was a partner in tribulation. He was a partner in their patient endurance. We must not take the figures that we find in the Bible and make them more than human. They are as human as anyone in this room, as anyone listening to me, men, women. But, God wanted to communicate something to John, to believers, and to the rest of the world. Something that was so important, so significant, and so unimaginable that he brought John to heaven itself in order to deliver the message. I mean, much of the message is delivered in pictures, right? We have opening of seals. We have horses going here and there. We have these uh, great creatures that are from someone's deep, deep imagination. And that message, though, 
through those symbols, provide for us a way to understand what is happening in the world, what the future of the world holds, and what will happen even with the church. Some of these are difficult to decipher. I, I got to thinking about this, you know, as you look at some of the symbolism here, you end up with uh, words can only go so far. In fact, pictures can only go so far. I was reading uh, the other day and I came across a, a, the, a story of, in 1996, Brazil became aware of a man who was the last remaining person from his tribe, and his tribe was an uncontacted people group decimated by outsiders, and when they tried to make contact with him, he put an arrow in the chest of, of one, of those, one of those men. Instead of, instead of trying to find him and do him harm, what they did was they declared that he was a victim of genocide, and so consequently they absolutely bordered off a 42-square-mile territory, off-limits to everyone, so that this man could live out his days in peace. And he was last seen some 22 years later, after 1996, in 2018, cutting down a tree. His language is unknown. His tribe that he was from, unknown. He's simply known as the loneliest man on earth. Or locally, they call him the man in the hole. And this man knows nothing about our great cities. He knows nothing about space travel. He knows nothing about hot or cold running water. He knows nothing about World War I, World War II, Vietnam, or any other conflict that one might think of. Now here's your challenge interaction here here's your challenge i want you to explain to that man what a cell phone is i want you to think about it i mean for us cell phones are so natural that uh, anyone under the age of 35 can't imagine ever existing without them and yet i was 42 years old before i got my first cell phone I was 35 years old, before 32 anyway, before I got my first computer. And so what comes so completely natural to many of you is absolutely an amazement to me. I'm still amazed that I can pull out a cell phone and that I can talk to someone. In fact, I find some of that stuff just incomprehensible. But suppose you wanted to make peaceful contact with him and you were separated by a swift river so you got your that he could not cross. So you got yourself into a hovercraft, you went over the river, you went over the mud flats, which he would never go to from the time of his youth. He was told that mud, the mud flats lead only to death. And so you reach him. You go effortlessly across the mud to where he is at. How would he describe your approach? Think about it. How, how would he describe a hovercraft? How would he describe any of these things? We get some idea from the Navajo code talkers during World War II. A battleship was a whale. A tank was a tortoise. A submarine was an iron fish. However, this man doesn't know what a whale is. 
He has no conception of a tank, and he's never heard of iron. Now, how would you explain to him what a cell phone is? Or does? I mean, at least growing up, I knew what a phone was. So when I got a cell phone, I had some connection to, oh, I, I understand what a phone is. Uh, here, I have this. He, he doesn't know what a phone is. <laughs> Why am I belaboring this? It is because the images that we see in the book of Revelation are as clear a representation of what John saw as is humanly possible to describe them. Therefore, there is no need to see if we can make a better image. But we're going to try to describe them, and this is going to become more important as we go along. Thankfully, many of these images are presented to us in the Old Testament. And thankfully, many of these images are interpreted. Otherwise, we would be like the disciples. Jesus asked them, do you understand what I just said? <laughs> no, we don't get it. Thankfully, we have some things that allow us in there. But the main point is this. We are viewing things through the book of Revelation that reveals to us that all that is seen is not all that exists. Now, Dan mentioned a few weeks ago, and it's interesting to note once again, that while the church is mentioned frequently in the first three chapters, beginning here in chapter 4, it's not mentioned again until 22.16. Uh, it may be alluded to a couple of times, like with the 24 elders or, or the bride of Christ or something like that. But from, from this point until the, practically the end of the book, we don't see it. Now, we can't build a doctrine off that, but it is interesting to note how beautifully that fits with other passages, such as the, 1 Thessalonians 5.9, that teaches clearly that the church, the church will be caught up in the air with the Lord. And that will happen before the great tribulation because of the theological impossibility of the believer facing the wrath of God. I've made this point before. I'm going to make it once again and perhaps put a little finer point on it because it's so important and is in fact a part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus, according to 1 Timothy 1.15, came into the world to save sinners. Because of Christ, Paul in Romans 3.36 tells us that God can rightly call sinners justified. Why? It is because Christ bore the wrath of God that we deserved, that we deserved, and in doing that and in our coming to him, we were indwelt by the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God cannot be subjected to the wrath of God. If you think that we can separate the Spirit of God indwelling in us from us, you do not understand the indwelling. God will, will not take wrath upon us. To separate the believer from the spirits indwelling simply fails to understand 
the inseparable union that the Spirit creates. Therefore, God did what we could not do. He poured his wrath out that we deserved on Christ, and he gave us the righteousness of Christ that we did not deserve. So please, don't mishear what I'm saying. Do not confuse discipline, the discipline of God. He does discipline his children with the wrath of God. He does not exercise wrath on his children. You punish your child. You discipline your child. You punish the lawbreaker. We were once one and the same, but Christ gave his life for us so that we could be have the righteousness of Christ. Charles Wesley rightly understood this when he wrote these words. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. Now John was immediately before the throne. Uh, Someday it's going to be that quick. Uh, You and I are going to be doing whatever it is that we're doing, and we're going to hear these words, come up here. God is going to take us home. The Lord is going to meet us in the air, and so we ever will be with the Lord. The the throne, back to the throne now. The throne is a thing that has captured John's attention. Everything in heaven is referenced by the throne. Things are before the throne. They're around the throne. The glassy sea, the emerald reindeer, uh, rainbow. First and foremost, we see that God is on his throne. God sees, uh, or John sees a scene in which God sits securely on his throne. This is not a scene in which God is feverishly working out how COVID-19 is going to pan out. He's not desperately trying to figure out how your life or my life is going to go. He's not anxiously consulting with his 24 elders about the troubles of his church and his people. He's not bunkered down in a war room with his four strange creatures drawing up contingency plans. No, and the flashes and rumblings and thunder that we read of and that we hear is not God raging in fury. It's the only way that we can be presented with his holiness. The thunder, the lightning, the voice. It all sounds very familiar, or it should, to Exodus 19 and verse 16. When the Lord gave Moses the law, he said, Then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, and the sound of the trumpet was very loud, so that all the people in the camp trembled. This leads us to an important understanding. If the business of the 24 elders, if the business of the four creatures, if their business is to worship God day in and day out, 
What does that say about us and what our business should be? It tells me that we exist in order to glorify God. God alone is worthy to receive glory and honor and power. And the glory of God is the chief purpose of all that exists. We see that open before us as John witnesses this in heaven. For from God and through God and to God are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. We're told that in Romans 11 and 36. Our destination, that is heaven, where John was at that time and where in some cases, maybe even at that time, we will witness the event that we're talking about right now in real time. But nevertheless, that destination is worth our time on earth and our trial. I've heard some uh, criticize Christians for being too heavenly minded to be any earthly good. I, I suppose that's theoretically possible to be so misguided with such an extreme focus on heaven that we ne neglect the natural and normal kind of earthly needs of those around us. But I've never seen it. I'll bet you haven't either. And that condition is found nowhere in Scripture. We don't, we don't see it. We do not see that you can be too heavenly minded. The truth is, we're not heavenly minded enough. I've sat with many, many believers as their time drew near. And what did they want to speak about primarily? Family, of course. Loved ones, of course. But they wanted to know what heaven was like. What did I think they would be greeted with in glory? Do we even long for it? Do we think about it? When was the last time you heard a sermon preached about heaven? Are we just trying to make it through our days? in isolation you know when i became a new believer my military friends criticized me because they said i believed in a pie in the sky religion well i mean if you mean if you mean pie taken such that something that would wash the awful taste of this world out of my mouth i that's pretty good i will take that they would say ah you're just religious because you need a crutch and i say crutch are you kidding i need a stretcher Listen, our God has prepared for us a heavenly city in a heavenly country. According to Hebrews, we're told that. For it is when we look up to heaven that we can find our way through earthly trials. That's our mind needs to be in our home. This is not our home. We are sojourners. We're just passing through. It's when our hope is lodged in heaven that we can move through this world with patience and even with joy. Too heavenly minded? Not a chance. We're too earthly minded. You know, God made us for himself. He made us so that we might come to know Him, to commune with Him, to be in intimate fellowship with Him. 
to experience the fullness of satisfaction and joy that comes from our knowledge of Him and to express back the adoration and joy and homage and praise. And where is God? Where is His throne? It's in heaven. That's why He made us. And if we can't get our eyes off of ourselves, if we can't put our eyes onto the throne of God and onto the Lord and His glory, the end result will not be good. But if we can, if we're able to do that, then the end result will be a joy we never knew possible. Try Him and see. I know many of us are isolated, but we can use some of those moments to perhaps memorize even some scripture, certainly to meditate on scripture about God, about His throne, about His glory, about heaven. And if our minds can dwell on these things, then the anxiety that the world wants to bring into our lives, the depression that the world wants to lay upon us, those things will go away as we focus on His attributes and His glory, His goodness and His grace. That will give us joy. That will give us contentment. Let His throne captivate your mind and your senses. So in these times, troubled as they are, if we're taken by fear, remember the life of Martin Reinhardt, who through the pain and through the fire and through the suffering wrote all praise and thanks to God the Father now be given the Son in Him who reigns with them in highest heaven, the one eternal God whom earth and heaven adore, for thus it was, is now, and shall be evermore. Be not afraid. Our God is still on His throne. Father, we are so deeply grateful for Your Word. And Lord, just because many are physically isolated, our minds and our spirits do not have to be or remain isolated. Your Spirit living and breathing and moving in us through the power of your Word connects us in a way that is unimaginable, impossible, for the world to see or understand. And so we pray that you would give us the encouragement that we need by looking to your throne, by looking to you who sits on it. And we thank you through Christ our Lord. Amen.